Hello, and thanks for joining me on episode 17 of Shelf Love. Every week, we discuss romance novels worth reading and use them as graduate-level textbooks to discuss how stories about love help us understand ourselves and the world we live in. I'm your host, Andrea Martucci, and this week I'm joined by Katrina Jackson, erotic romance author and historian. In this episode, we discuss An Unconditional Freedom by Alyssa Cole, which is a historical romance with reluctant spies who team up to take down the Confederacy during the Civil War. And since Kat is a legit historian, she drops a ton of knowledge and nuance about the circumstances surrounding the story we discuss, plus weaves through it her own research about love as an integral part of radical Black politics. A note about the recording of this episode. So we originally recorded an episode in early December, or at least I thought we did. Unfortunately, our first recording didn't actually record, so we had to do it all again on December 23rd. If you've been following along with the RWA shit show, that date will sound familiar because we recorded this hours before news broke about RWA's censure of Courtney Milan. I mention this because I think a lot of our conversation is eerily relevant to the discussions that we've been having in Romance Landia about white fragility. I don't want to editorialize too much because I think our conversation speaks for itself, but did want to explain why this conversation isn't mentioning recent events specifically. Uh, I'm Katrina Jackson, and I am an author of erotica and erotic romance, and mostly my connection to Romance Landia is spending too much time on Twitter. What's the last romance novel you read and loved? It's The AI Who Loved Me by Alyssa Cole. I adored it. Oh, yes. That will probably be available in text soon, but right now it is audio only. It's like an audible original. And it sounds super fascinating. When Alyssa Cole was on the show, she recommended a few Android romances, but a lot of them were like YA. So I'm now I'm like on the hunt for other like adult romance with androids. After I finished listening to it, which I'm not an audiobook fan normally but I literally got audible for this book mm-hmm. after I finished it I was on Twitter talking about it and I was like I'm ready for all of the like robot AI romances and then I mentioned one of Kit Roach's books uh Ashwin which he's not an android but he is a super secret enhanced human thing mm-hmm. which is kind of a connection kind of well oh no actually the connection is that well, there there is that connection, and then also that both of these like government weapons are also learning how to feel in these relationships. Uh, it's so good. So okay, I'll have to check that out. So you've been published for about four years now, and prior to that, were you like a long time romance reader or erotica reader, or was that like a fairly new thing and then you jumped right into writing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I've been a long term erotica reader. I definitely was the kid who was sneaking into the adult like sections of the library and like seeing what Mm -hmm. I could find and like sadly stumbling on like Anne Rice's erotica and thinking I was just gonna say that's exactly my memory of the earliest erotic writing I ever read and it's so it's deeply uh, disturbing now but when I was a kid I was like this is a whole new world. <laughs> like, and I, yeah. yeah, I was definitely too young. But so I probably started reading erotica before romance. And I read romance as a kid, but I, I didn't read, like, I didn't realize I was reading romance per se. So I mostly read like 
Like, I was definitely the kid who went to school and I was like, so we're reading all these old white dudes, you know, and I would go to the library and I would ask the librarian, like, I want to read black authors or I want to read female authors. And so I would read romance as just part of that kind of natural grab bag of whatever I could find in those categories. But I didn't start reading romance explicitly and understanding I was reading romance probably until about like 2014, maybe 2013. And when you finally realized that that's what you were reading slash interested in, which romance authors or erotica authors do you think were the most influential on your own writing? I read a lot of crap I didn't like (laughs) for those first few years. And then I think... I think the first person I found who really spoke to me was Rebecca Weatherspoon. I adore her writing. And I kind of read whatever she had or a lot of what she had at the time. And then a friend recommended who tends to go on these random book jumps with me. Like, I'm just like, I'm reading this thing, read it. Um, She recommended Alyssa's An Extraordinary Union. And Mm -hmm. she did it with the caveat that you're a historian. I know you, because I was reading a lot of things, but I was, also avoiding historical romance for a lot of reasons and she was like I know it's historical romance but I think you'll like it and I said I'm probably not gonna like it and I'll just tell you (laughs) how much I don't and instead I was telling her how much I loved every part of it and then from there so I would say I found Rebecca in like maybe like 2015 2016 And I found Alyssa a year or two later. And since then, I jumped from Alyssa Cole to Beverly Jenkins, who I adore as well. I really love Kit Rocha, which I also found, I think, them through Rebecca. And yeah, I mean, there are other people, but those are probably the sort of few right at the beginning. know a lot about history because you are in fact a history professor. I'm a historian, yeah. Yes. Can you remind me again your area of study? I know there's something about the word diaspora. Yeah, I'm a I have a PhD in African American and African diaspora history. And my personal focus is like 20th century history and all of my writing is on post World War II. Yes. And diaspora, which you educated me on last time, is the people of a region even when they go to other places yeah so i think the word began with like the jewish diaspora so it, it really is about the sort of scattering of people around the world and for the african diaspora it can be there are like two competing definitions it can be africa and it's diaspora so people of african descent and african everywhere or there's a separation so the diaspora would be people of african descent outside of africa oh okay interesting that's a whole weird <laughs> battle it's like the diaspora doesn't include Africa, it can't. And then there are some historians who argue that it can. I truly don't care because I study both. (laughs) (laughs) You said that you were avoiding reading historical and you have in the past said you were avoiding writing historical, but also recently you did start working on a historical erotic romance project, right? I did, yeah. So part of the reason I was avoiding reading historical romance is that I read and write romance so that I'm not consumed by my job. And that seemed like a stupid thing to do if I was trying to have some separation. But I also, a lot of the historical romance that I found, like other people, right, it was incredibly white and incredibly Eurocentric. And that is just not my interest. 
Mm-hmm. And I also had like what little I'd sort of set my foot into. I was just like, it's not even just that it's really Eurocentric. It's also really straight. And there are sort of like really big issues here with like class and like empire. And these are things that I also study. So I was not interested. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the reason why I didn't want to write a historical romance at the time that I said it, which I've forgotten I said that. But it also, again, wouldn't allow me to have like a separation from my job but I recently started working on a project I'm in the very early stages of just reading uh, looking at kind of interwar diasporic romance set in the U.S. the Caribbean and Europe Mm -hmm. and sorry what do you say Uh, what kind of war interwar so between uh, sorry between World War One and Two oh okay sorry it's a historical term (laughs) no it is (laughs) it is interwar i'm like are we are we always is that a new one interwar <laughs> right we technically we probably are you know interwars between <laughs> world war one and two okay between the world wars we don't know when the third one's gonna happen yet let's take this dark speaking yeah i mean we're gonna be talking a lot about war honestly wow okay that just yeah depressing yeah <laughs> very depressing <laughs> You know, I think this is related to an unconditional freedom, but one of the first conversations we had, uh, you had a tweet about how you were engaged in research where you were researching how love is an integral part of radical black politics and moving into considerations of love and desire for spaces for identifying narratives of freedom. And I was like, excuse me, please tell me more about this because I'm very interested in it. So yeah, what is the project? What are you working on? I mean, I'm a researcher and so I always want to say this is in the very early stages, um, which is what we say. When That's we, exactly what you said. Yeah, because it's what we say when we go to conferences and people are like, we don't, we want to like head off a kind of, you know, conversation. It's like, I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. The romance novel part is new, but the work on love is actually very much a part of all of the work I've done since my dissertation and actually maybe even my master's thesis. So a lot of my work on the the African diaspora, I'm a social uh, movement historian. And so a lot of my work is looking at, you know, movements to end police brutality or anti-colonialism or for housing, um, reproductive justice. And a lot of the, the way that the work on these topics tends to look is that the organizing is individual or familial related, but it is an assumption that people will sort of work together to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And as I was doing the research for my dissertation, for sure, I started really kind of grappling with that, partially because my dissertation was about two different countries. So I was looking in the 1960s and 70s and early 80s in the UK and in the US. And I was seeing a whole bunch of parallels. But the thing I, I really sort of wanted to understand was what made people even want to organize because they weren't the first communities to deal with some of these struggles. A lot of my work is literally community oriented. So there are other communities nearby that are dealing with these things that aren't responding in the same way. And so I wanted to know what was that thing that was pushing them into action and organizational building. And for my dissertation and my work thus far, so much of that is familial bonds. And so I started kind of realizing that what people are doing 
is really about love, right? They are making decisions that they may not have made otherwise because their children are being arrested at inordinate rates or a family member cannot access an abortion or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. For my dissertation, I, I had this whole chapter where I was trying to theorize love as a particular Black radical organizing impetus. Now, my advisors hated it. <laughs> they really were like, this chapter can go. Um, but And it did. But I came back to it a few years later in my current position because it still seemed to matter to me. And especially mm -hmm. it mattered to me in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin and yeah. what I was seeing happening in those moments. And, you know, this is a good kick in the butt for me to finish this article. What I was seeing happening is that so much of the advocacy around these children or these people who were killed by the police was coming specifically because of the advocacy of their parents, really painful advocacy, but also people rallying around that sort of imagine connection as uh, Black people or even just the understanding that that could be their, their child, right? Or their younger brother or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's by no means new. Like we see a really similar thing happening, for instance, in uh, the aftermath of the lynching of Emmett Till. We even remember his name because his mother, it, his mother's advocacy was about like loving her child even after she lost him mm -hmm. in a really terrible way. And so I have always in my work and in my teaching wanted to sort of make clear that everyone doesn't respond necessarily to these kind of social and economic and political hardships by organizing. But for the people that I studied, love, and in this case, familial love, was really significant in them taking that extra step. Right. And then after the 2016 election, I was feeling very much like I don't want to continue doing the work I've been doing. And I essentially stopped reading for a really long time. And when I started reading again, what I was reading was romance novels. And this is about when I found Alyssa Cole. Then I sort of went on a Beverly Jenkins spree, <laughs> which is a nice place to be, still there. She's written so much. And what I was sort of seeing as a historian who studies people of African descent, I was seeing some echo of the, the, the kinds of things I was trying to explain to my dissertation advisors, right? That mm -hmm. there are all of these like really sort of terrible things happening or even just, you know, in some cases mundane things happening, but the sort of things that matter really significantly to people, to people of African descent are their relationships, right? With one another and with loved ones. Uh, an extraordinary union is an interracial relationship, right? But love is the kind of thing that sustains them, right? And I, mm -hmm. there is this sort of echo of a lecture I give my students over and over again, where their expectation of African-American history, since that's mostly what I teach, their expectation is trauma, trauma, trauma. Mm -hmm. And while I do have to teach them trauma, I frame that trauma in the context of the kind of organizing that I'm used to studying and the kind of love that feeds that organizing. Yeah. So I'm now yeah. trying to sort of take this to thinking about the kind of integral or how I can integrate romance novels into this teaching of this history. That's going to be awesome. <laughs> and that totally makes sense. And I love so many of the things that you said. Like one thing I was thinking about specifically was I was reading an article about how one of the strategies that the gay rights movement used to make progress was basically leveraging the fact that queer people tend to have family members who are not queer. And 
when, you know, as you're talking about, like, you know, your brother, your your sister, your mom, whatever, if somebody's in your family, you can personalize that struggle. Oh, but I love my brother, so maybe all of this anti-gay rhetoric that I have been socialized with is not, maybe that's wrong. And that has helped, they were talking, you know, in the article about how that has helped make a lot of progress. And I believe in the article, I don't think I'm just extrapolating this out myself now, but one of the challenges with getting society to move on these things is that black families, their family members are all black. They are not usually also in the same family as white people. And so white people have that distance. White people often live in like segregated communities with lots of other white people. So they don't personally know as many black people or work closely with them. And they are not family members usually in many cases with black people. And that that separation contributes. Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah, like it's that feeling of, well, I can't connect with this struggle. Like, and I think, I mean, what you're talking about is that sort of people need to have this, feel this human connection to empathize with a struggle that is not, is their own or is not their own. It is the problem. It is the symptom of the problem. And then because white communities tend to be very segregated, it prevents this seeing when a black child is shot in the street, being able to imagine that as their child and imagine how horrific that is. Yeah. So before I respond to that, I'm literally only ever studying black people. Yeah. So I don't have to. So I that assumption, because you're right, like you have to be able to sort of see yourself in the other person in some way, shape or form. And this was Mm -hmm. actually hilariously the part my advisors, one of my advisors really hated, (laughs) which was like you'll see a lot in like news and politics and even in black history and critical studies, they'll talk about a black community. And part of what I was saying is that I'm personally from California mm-hmm. and I didn't grow up in a black community. I grew up in a community that was actually primarily immigrant. And then there were a lot of poor black people. So I grew up mostly around like Mexican American immigrants or Vietnamese refugees. So I didn't grow up in a black community in the same way that like, you know, friends of mine who grew up in the South did. Mm-hmm. And so what I was trying to argue is that for people who don't have like that kind of physical black community they have to take that leap that you're talking about to see black people elsewhere, like who are just not at all connected, right? So in another country or of another class, right, they have to take that particular leap to identify with them. And some of that is aided because they're black, right, or they're people of African mm-hmm. descent. But that in and of itself is a choice. And my advisor is from Mississippi and she was like, no. <laughs> like, but, but yeah, you are right that there has been this kind of conversation, especially post-civil rights in the U.S., about why we haven't made certain kinds of, of leaps and bounds socially. And some of that has to do, one, with how segregated white people live. Like, Black people tend to have non-Black people in their families, right? So... My father's half white. I had a white stepfather. Like mm-hmm. there are white people. Like my, you know, sister in law is half white. Like there, are, I have Mexican family members. There are people who are not black in my family. The same is not true for white families, though, right? So they mm-hmm. aren't able to access those personal connections that make that leap that they need to identify with other people. And then as a social <laughs> movement historian, you need to make that leap to then begin to organize together. And if you can't right. do that, then yeah, you you literally cannot make certain kinds of changes socially. So yeah, I, I definitely think that you're right. I definitely think then the 
look, please don't hate me. But then the critique of queer activism is that so much of that work of personalizing it has been almost entirely white centered. Yeah. So there has been this way and people, I'm certainly not the first one, but people have critiqued the marriage equality movement, right? Because immediately upon receiving marriage equality, there was this sort of narrative amongst very privileged, primarily queer white men, cis queer white men, that the movement was done. And so, oh, yeah. and so then there was no sort of conversation about like trans siblings and about, you know, queer people of color. There's huge bi erasure, right? So we just, there is that critique of queer activism that because it became so personal and that personal connection was the primary, for some people, the primary mode of activism that it hamstrung the kinds of things that could happen after marriage equality. Yeah. Yes. I like recently I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, like I am a white person. I have lived primarily in communities that are predominantly white areas in in the Northeast. And so, you know, us New Englanders, we definitely have this idea, you know, we're not from the South. We're the good guys. We're the Patriots or like whatever. We don't have racial problems, says the person living outside of Boston where there was, you know, that whole busing thing. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you heard about that. People forget, right, that, like, the site of the sort of busing controversy was, like, Boston and Detroit. Like, these are, these are important spaces. Yeah. I went to school in Boston at a, a college that definitely has diversity issues. And trying to uh, kind of sort through the, uh, the choices I've made in there and... I don't know, just just trying to like, I'm like, okay, I'm dealing with a lot of white fragility here. I live in a primarily white space and I teach in a primarily white space and it's very different from the place where I grew up and my students are primarily white as well. And I think so much of what I end up trying to do is maybe not the thing I was trying to do. Like I definitely was trying to have like these entirely, and I want to have these sort of in my research is kind of conversation about black communities that doesn't, which is why that, you know, half mad tweet is the way that it is. But I want to have this conversation that is about the black community or many black communities that are, it's insular, right? So it isn't entirely focused on like the things meted out to them. But then I, I end up in my teaching have to figure out a way to sort of have that conversation that you're talking about to people who are not have not grown up around any person of color, right? And they have no clear understanding of what that looks like. And love isn't always the easiest way to do that. But it does allow them to really think and it does allow me to force them <laughs> for their grade and <laughs> to think about <laughs> in ways that we can't do right with social media or with news to really force them to say what if this was your brother right what is your yeah. response and they can't dismiss me and say well it's not or whatever people say on social media they literally have to do that because the lecture hinges on them being able to do that yeah there's been a lot of conversation about like in romance novels specifically that's where I'm most comfortable talking about it because I am not a historian but about marginalized voices in romance and about like centering the story around that marginalized person's narrative as opposed to like sure 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 we live in a world with gay people and people of color and you know yada yada but like they're side characters they're they're there but it's not their worldview what i love about an unconditional freedom and the history that it's presenting 
is that it is centering the perspective of, I mean, Daniel in the book is, we're just talking about the book now, but he both has the perspective of a black man living in the Boston area actually during the Civil War, but then who is enslaved and kidnapped and taken down south. And so, so he also then gets he gets to have the experience of also being enslaved. And uh, Janetta, who is, I don't know if immigrant is the right term, but she, I mean, she's not an American. So she also has this outsider, like, what the heck is this place? Outsider viewpoint, but also understanding how her skin color is going to affect how she is perceived in this strange country. And it's history. It's obviously extremely well-researched, but it is a perspective that forces you as the reader to, I mean, you are like in any novel, you're empathizing with the protagonists and seeing the civil war or, you know, this small slice of the civil war through their eyes is a very different story than reading a textbook or like reading the letters of somebody, you know, like a white general or whatever, you know, somebody whose story was considered valid to be told and who kind of gets to control the narrative around like what was happening, they are by default not able to tell the whole story. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're totally right that what Alyssa is able to do in this story is so layered and complicated. And then she's an amazing writer. So it, it doesn't feel heavy, right? So when I have to lecture about this, it's heavy. I mean, the subject matter is heavy in An Unconditional Freedom, but the way that she presents it is so masterful because as you said, right? Like so often when we talk about diversity in romance novels, there are novels that present characters of color as if they are a monolith, right? Mm-hmm. Even in Alyssa's book, there is literally no monolith, right? So Daniel mm-hmm. is a free person of color who is then enslaved. And he actually deals, a lot of his internal conflict is kind of comparing who he was before and after his enslavement. Mm-hmm. And Mm -hmm. then Janetta does a lot of the comparing of slavery in Cuba and slavery in the U.S. And then also how she fits in different spaces, not just depending on which country she's in, but also even just literally if she's at her family home, if she's out, you know, um, elsewhere in the city, if she's in the South versus the North. Like there's just such a, a rich complication of experiences that you're totally right. Like we don't we don't learn the, I certainly didn't learn these things, you know, when I was in school until like I went to graduate school and even some of this I'm still learning. So it's, it's just such a rich story. To back up for a second, you recommended this book to read for the podcast. Why do you think An Unconditional Freedom is a book worth reading? Oh my God. So besides it being such a rich narrative. Yes. One, I just adore, I'm a huge Alyssa Colstan huge like not even a fan just straight up standing <laughs> so I got into historical romance with the first book in the series and but this is my favorite book in the series period part of why I love it is that it is such a beautifully painful story that never skimps on dealing with these characters internal sort of struggle in that I don't tend to like artificial uh, relationship drama in romance I much more love the internal internal struggle, right? As these characters sort of grow and get to know one another and also struggle to open themselves up. Mm-hmm. And I think Alyssa presents that very beautifully here. And I, you know, am sometimes a sucker for a book that makes me cry. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's your jam, yeah, I just I just think it's a really a really amazing story. And so the book itself is about Daniel Cumberland, who, as we said, was born free in Massachusetts. He studied law. And he was in love with his neighbor, Ellen, who is the protagonist in the first book in this series. We hear her story in An Extraordinary Union. And she is, her values very much are to do everything she can, even though it's not really impacting her in her life in Massachusetts. And Daniel is a bit like, I don't get this. Why don't we just get married? and live our lives and she's disappointed in him goes off and then it becomes very personal for Daniel when he is captured enslaved brought down to the south by slave catchers or, or people who are they don't care that they're capturing they're smugglers yes smugglers the loyal league basically buys him and then frees him and so he is now free again however he is basically forever changed from this experience and has a lot of guilt for I think not understanding prior to actually experiencing it how terrible it was and not doing more prior to that to fight it like I think he feels like he was very naive before and so he basically becomes like a spy for the loyal league and their covert organization working to free individuals and working against the Confederates in the Civil War. So then Janetta is a Cuban who moved to Florida with her father. She is, is she, her mother was black and her father is Cuban? Um, I mean, her father's white. I mean, that's what really matters. (laughs) I guess they're all Cuban. Yeah. Right. So she is, sorry, you uh, reminded me of the term last time. Morena. That's what it was, right? Yes. Which is like, it describes her racial identity or appearance anyways is and i have since looked into this so i think it's both that it describes her that one it's it's an indication that she is of some mixture some racial mixture but also her coloring that she would be okay brown skin with like dark features right and so she her mother was the second wife of her father and so her sisters are white and Janetta has grown up, I mean, she is the daughter of a slave owner. And a former slave, right? Yes, right, right. The daughter of a slave owner and a former slave. And so she literally lives on a plantation where there are slaves working the fields. And yet she lives this life of privilege and basically has been gaslit her entire life that like, oh, no, you're different than these people somehow. Uh, don't, don't ask too many questions. And she... I'm making this as long as possible. This I'm just going to go blow by blow. She basically is used by a local man who's part of this, the Sons of the Confederacy, a group. Her father is jailed and this guy tells her, like, the way you can save your father is to go infiltrate the Loyal League and be a double agent, basically. So that's why she's there. And over the course of the story, Daniel and Janetta are paired up on a mission and Janetta is coming to terms with the fact that everything she's experiencing is completely at odds with what she has been taught in her life. Yeah, it's painful, man. <laughs> so painful. One of the things I was thinking about with Janetta and sort of her internal journey to understanding, like she has a complicated family, right? Her father theoretically loved her mother and yet did not find it odd that he could then continue to enslave people based on their race. Well, and even one of the things that sticks with me and stuck with me when I read the book is 
that even her, her memories of her mother are warped. So, mm-hmm. you know, there is this sort of narrative from her mother, but certainly from her father and siblings, that her mother was happy to be free. And yet the sort of melancholy of freedom, right, the separation from her community, which would have been enslaved people, is so complete that freedom doesn't fix the problem, right? Like, because mm-hmm. she's not really free to a certain extent. If you can see what I'm doing with my hands right now. She's not <laughs> She's not really free because she has to live up to the idea that she is different and better than, right? To justify her former slave owner freeing her to then have a sexual relationship with her. I mean, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. Right, yeah, because I the power dynamic there is such that you can understand. So Janetta, her perspective on it is not the true perspective. That's not her mother's perspective. Whatever she saw is through her own lens. And as you said, her father and her sister's lens. So if you imagine her mother's life, your owner takes an interest in you and you have an opportunity to have a better life for yourself and your children. I can understand taking that opportunity, being tortured by the feelings because of the power dynamic, having to feel like you have to be happy about it and you can't you can't express that like this isn't necessarily a man she chose you know you cannot choose to be in a consensual relationship with the person who owns you yeah i re- i think we talked about this and i remember <laughs> so if you follow me on twitter long enough you see me mad about various things <laughs> but you, you mad <laughs> who who could have thunk it but i think either earlier this year or last year i got really angry because there was the scholar talking about The biggest example of this, the reason this comes up time and time again is usually because of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And there was someone sort of talking about the way in which slavery couldn't have been that bad because, and one of the examples was enslaved women, you know, choosing these sexual partners with white men, whether they're owner or other white men. And the sort of immediate response I saw to that, which is the thing that I'm used to the first response I get that every semester it is not fun but I'm used to it but the immediate response to that which actually made me angrier was to then say that enslaved people had absolutely no agency right no choice oh yeah yeah right and that's not true because as you said right if this sexual relationship with a partner that you cannot choose can give you more clothing more food children who might be free one day, it is, for me, so inhumane to argue, one, that enslaved people wouldn't understand that, mm-hmm. and that, two, that, they, that some of them might not take that opportunity. Now, what I think Alyssa does really well here in sort of dealing with the, I mean, I don't know if it's depression or, or what that Donetta is, is remembering of her mother, but that comes at a cost, right? Certainly. But it's a decision that people make because why wouldn't they, right? Like a chance at freedom, a chance at your children to be free. For many people, it is roughly speaking the same kind of impetus that leads people to run away, right? Mm -hmm. You would do anything to access that. Those are choices. Those are limited choices, certainly, but they're choices nonetheless. Yeah, and I think thinking about, well, oh, well, it can't have been that bad because individuals made choices and, you know, individuals have have agency. And I often think about this idea with feminism, like, 
well, if a woman made the choice, it's her choice. I'm like, well, just because a woman makes a choice doesn't mean it's a feminist choice. And I think, you know, thinking about the like, what what is it, 53% of white women who voted for Trump, you know, internalized misogyny is a thing. And I think Janetta is an, a very interesting example of internalized racism where you grow up in a racist environment and they certainly all did back then and they certainly we all certainly do now when you grow up in that and i mean her example is a pretty extreme example where i think it's very hard to under to separate out if your idea of and i'm i'm definitely borrowing this from reading i've done recently most specifically white fragility i will put the link in the show notes to that book if you grow up thinking like oh well racism is evil and only like if you call me a racist you're calling me an evil person as opposed to like thinking about racism as this like really entrenched an action can be racist a a way of thinking can be racist and everybody who is a racist is not this boogeyman monster you know obviously they're not obviously this boogeyman monster like Janetta has a really hard time coming to terms with the genteel man who courted her according to her perspective and like her father whom she loves how can they be racist it would not be period appropriate for her to think about them as like quote unquote racist, but how could they do this to her? Don't they love her? Like, aren't they trying to protect her? And it's just such a, I think Alyssa Cole does such an amazing, I mean, she's an amazing writer, but the way she has Janetta work through that. Right. Because it's not just, they can't be again, not period appropriate, but they can't be racist because they love me. It's also that she can't be like the other black people because she is loved by white people, right? Like mm-hmm. it is, like there, there's all, there are all those moments in the book where she feels like an imposter with Daniel and with other African-Americans because she does not have that experience, partially because she's Cuban and also because she was raised free, But then she also has to work through that there are so many more similarities that she has been suppressing, right? Um, That she suppressed when she was growing up on the plantation, right? Like people who might have looked like her on the plantation, she was taught, no, 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 no. They don't look anything like you, right? And that's Mm -hmm. a really painful kind of realization because as you said, she's been gaslit her entire life by pretty much everyone, to be honest, right? So that she literally has to find herself in the most dire circumstances. Mm -hmm. Part of that is talking about like privilege too. And part of this is like her mother's story too, right? Like what we were talking about where if her mother made the choice she did have some agency in that decision to be with Janetta's father. Can you fault her for making as good of a life as she could in that situation? And Janetta, it's not like you're like, well, you should have stormed off and you should have realized this sooner and you should have stormed away from your life of privilege much earlier. You should have realized what was happening. Like, because things were comfortable for her, it was a lot harder to kind of see what was happening around her. Yeah. Well, and even that that idea, right, that like, of course, she should have known or she should have realized earlier. But I can't I can't imagine that someone does this in a book that is this short. Like I I have read I've literally read historical monographs that are 300 plus pages that are trying to tease some of this out. But Mm -hmm. literally, she can't have come to that understanding earlier because the first thing she needs to realize or one of the first things she needs to come to, gri- come to grips with is that even her idea that her life was easy is not true. 
right? Because right. she she literally sort of has the realization where she realizes that her role was to make everyone else see in her what they wanted to see. Yeah, I found that all of her thinking around that was so interesting. As a one at one point she's thinking about love and she says she'd always assumed that that's what love was when you got down to it giving yourself over to someone else's desires in the hope that they would perhaps care about yours and that's heartbreaking it's so heartbreaking and and it it, it isn't it, it has almost nothing to do with slavery i mean it is these are messages certainly that we teach women still to this day right but these are messages that we teach people, so many kinds of people, right? Fat people get similar messages. Many queer people get similar messages that love is not about them being mutually fulfilled. It is about giving other people what they need and hope that some of that comes back to you. Even if it's just an echo. It's so painful. Yeah. Yeah, that's... in. And- Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I just started thinking about like some individual people in my life. You know, like people who always, they are the first to volunteer to give their time, their money, their energy or whatever, their emotional energy to somebody else. And it is usually an indication that this is such a generalization, but it can be a symptom that this person doesn't believe that somebody can love them yeah. otherwise. Like, okay, well, people will love me if I serve them in this way, if I am the most helpful, if I am the most giving, whatever, Yeah. as opposed to like, okay, I am not just what I am to other people. Yeah, it's, <laughs> look, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I've read, this is the second Alyssa Cole book I read where I related a little too strongly, but yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it is, yeah, it is that idea. Like I had a conversation with my friend maybe like a month or so ago where I'm, I'm a particularly reserved person, especially when it comes to like hurt and pain, right? And so I don't tend to share. And I was telling her like, oh, I don't, I don't know what we're talking about, but I was like, I don't want to be a burden. And I just sort of skipped past it. And she was like, okay, well, you're not a burden. Mm-hmm. and um I was like ah you know whatever I said and she's like we're gonna go back to that <laughs> you're not a, a burden but literally like there are all these messages we get that we are unworthy of love and it's such a common theme in romance novels for sure right like there's it's usually the female main character who believes that they are unworthy of love for whatever reason and then the hero, you know, the male main character, like, tells them, like, or has to show them that they are. And this isn't quite that story, which is also why I loved it. It's that Janetta needs to realize that she is worthy of love. And that love also becomes a way that she can be fulfilled. And Daniel is part of that, but he's not the only thing happening that helps her get to that point. Right. And he doesn't believe it's interesting because he also doesn't believe he's worthy of love it's so sad (laughs) daniel doesn't believe he's worthy of love because he had this belief that freedom was innate and then he learned that wasn't true and then it's like his entire foundation is rocked and he feels like guilty for not realizing it earlier and bitter about the way the world is and naive for you know he feels so many like like anger and resentment and sadness for like innocence lost and and thinks he's not a good person shame i mean he has such shame oh yeah it's so painful right like maybe is that like a feeling of powerlessness like yeah wrapped up in that too like he 
he couldn't do anything about it. And he, he felt even, I think some of his memories are like, he's on the plantation and he still felt superior in some ways to the others on the plantation and like, and had these questions of like, why don't they run? Why don't they fight back? And like, why do they do this? And kind of realized, had to learn about how, what the power dynamics were and kind of like how it was not literal chains holding people there. It was familial bonds, um, community bonds, but also just like, right, you know that not only can they hurt you, they can hurt someone you love for showing any any sign of having individuality or challenging the system. Yeah. And I mean, I guess this is, well, we don't have to wait until the end to talk about his PTSD, right? Because so, so much of that is literally his PTSD and his brain telling him things right like so Mm -hmm. um but yeah there is this way in which which i i mean i actually really loved there's this way in which who he was before he was enslaved or before he was kidnapped is so idealistic about america right so he absolutely feels as if under the right circumstances (laughs) the u.s like no no one would want to hold slaves and you can reason with, you know, maybe not all, you know, slave owners, but like some, right? He has he has this really idealistic view of American freedom and democracy. And that gets broken while he is enslaved. And he's dealing with not just the loss of that kind of surety of, of what the country was and what it could be, but also of who he was. And there's such shame about even having been enslaved, but about having held those ideals those ideas before and how they lingered right and and then also that he is now free and and many of those he was enslaved with are not right he's dealing with such a complicated emotional reality and on top of that he's also dealing with the ptsd from having been enslaved and having been tortured and in very specific i mean it's just it's just such a painful, these are two of the most painful protagonists I, I'm certain I've read all year. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, no, he is flagellating himself constantly, internally. And she is, I think, just grappling with such a huge shift in worldview, like, uh-huh. throughout the book. Yeah, it's it's a lot. And I was thinking, I was like, there's not much actually happens in this book. You know, things happen. Like, there is external conflict but a lot of this book like in terms of like what the words are spent on is internal yeah musing and grappling and which i um, love (laughs) i'm an an intensely internal person (laughs) like i'm always overthinking everything and i i totally love that Yeah, I agree. I also am, uh, I do a lot of thinking and then I'm like, okay, now I need to talk to somebody to like really work this out, which is, it's a good thing I have a podcast. So I have somebody to talk to about this stuff. I have cats. (laughs) Oh, do you talk to your cats? I do. They don't care. Oh, yeah. Maggie hasn't read all the books I've read, so (laughs) (sighs) she's not a great conversationalist, honestly. (laughs) So... One of the things that I thought was interesting in this book too was, so there's this group, the Sons of the Confederacy. They're, as far as I can tell, like fairly privileged people who then, privileged white men in the South who understand that it is in their best interest for slavery to continue, but then they use other strategies to 
get other people on board whose interests are not fully aligned. So like poor white men, they kind of harness their anger. And the way it's described at some point is that this was one of the primary strategies of the sons agitating and riling up poor white men whose tenuous pride was so easily wounded and whose intentions so quickly turned deadly. I thought this was a very interesting corollary. And when you get to Alyssa Cole's, the author's note at the end, talking about recent events in, you know, 2018 and 2019, being very much in her mind, was it Charleston, the events at Charleston. So, you know, recent events that are happening, that's what's happening today. Right. Yeah. And so I guess what was interesting about how she wrote about this in the book is that I don't want to say she looks at those people with empathy, but she presents them in such a way that you at the very least kind of understand what's motivating them. Right. And they're not boogeymen. They're not, wow, somehow the most evil collection of people are right here antagonizing our protagonists. It's like, nope, this could just be anybody. And, you know, which is terrifying and also accurate. (laughs) Yes. Like, so, so when you're teaching, do you explicitly teach the Civil War in your classes? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so I do, but only in a very particular context. So I teach the African-American survey where I have to talk about the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But then outside of that, I can avoid it. But I do teach Reconstruction, which is the aftermath mm. of the Civil War, which involves a, a whole bunch of back and forth. Well, And I wonder, like, I feel like what my memory of learning about the Civil War in school, there was a lot of distance from it. And there wasn't there wasn't a lot of interrogation of like, why people went along with all of this. And and I did a little reading after reading the book about where were particularly like poor white people, they were not necessarily super benefiting from the system. Like a lot of times they were also suffering at this time, like, why are they supporting this system of inequality and um, oppression? And Apparently, like, there were a lot of religious leaders at the time were, like, preaching constantly about how Black people are literally, according to the Bible, they are inherently meant to be enslaved. And that was driving part of it. And then I think also this is where it feels very similar to, like, what's going on today. People who are lower on the sort of, like, social food chain are just desperate to not be at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I think that people, like, scholars have always some scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure this out in the contemporary moment but also historically and it kind of maybe we don't have I think I thought about this after we talked last time but I don't think we have the same kind of understanding of this as like they do in the Caribbean where they talk explicitly about poor white people there are fewer of them because you know settler states and all of that good stuff but there are like at least two classes of white people right there are like are rich plantation owners and then those which what we might now call like working class white people who essentially maintain slavery and so they don't benefit from it in the same way that the plantation owners do but one it means that they are employed because there aren't a whole bunch of jobs because most labor is being done by enslaved people it keeps them from being at the bottom of the social ladder which they would have been um, many of them in Europe Mm -hmm. and we don't have the same kind of framework for that in the U.S. to understand that and some of that is by design so there is a, a pretty significant historical understanding of in the earliest phases of slavery in in what is now the U.S. enslaved people lived alongside indentured servants Mm -hmm. And their lives were incredibly similar. 
because of that, they tended to intermarry, but more importantly, they ran away together. (laughs) (laughs) It is an epidemic, (laughs) at least at at some moments and in some places of enslaved men and women and indentured servants running away together. And it becomes such a huge problem that one, they begin to phase out indentured servitude in the U.S. as the enslaved population grows, but also they begin to implement a lot of policies that make that kind of relationship that seems inherent in hindsight, right? Like that these are people who are living, that are certainly not benefiting from slavery in the same way that plantation owners are, that businesses are, banks or, you know, insurance companies, and their lives are being ordered by the desire to keep um, a certain class of people enslaved. And many of them, like, for instance, in like northern spaces where we aren't talking about uh, plantation slavery, we're talking about enslaved people who are like hired out, so hired out by their owners to do like manual labor, like on the docks or things like that. Many of them are also living nearby to poor white people who are doing really similar work, but they are being paid for their labor, whereas enslaved people aren't. Mm -hmm. But the sort of way that you stop those people from organizing together is that you one tell them as you said that that black people are meant to be enslaved right like that is ordained by god but also that you create whiteness as a category like it doesn't Mm -hmm. exist necessarily in the way it doesn't exist in the way that we imagine it like we're talking about like people for instance like the, the best example that everyone uses are like irish people right Um, Mm -hmm. They are not considered white in the U.S. for a good century or plus, but you create a class of people who can be white at some point, maybe, right, to make sure that they do not align themselves with within their class, right, or those who might be broadly in the same class position by telling them that class doesn't matter. This is so such an American reality, right? Class doesn't matter. Race matters most of all. Yeah. So I read Rebel by Beverly Jenkins recently. And that was an interesting takeaway from that book where it takes place during Reconstruction and Drake comes from this like wealthy Creole family in New Orleans. And prior to and through the Civil War, like they were free people and landowners and wealthy and like almost like the upper crust of, I mean, I think they were the upper crust of the city. Not not that there was no racial discrimination, but class was much more of a distinction than race in New Orleans. Well, when you have the kind of money they did, right? Like then you can access certain things, yeah. Right, right. And so I thought that was, you're right. I mean, it is, America is, is it often said that America is like, I mean, maybe not the only place, but like the prime example of like racially based discrimination versus like other places. They they discriminate on other things. No, I mean, South Africa is right there being apartheid, you know? So, (laughs) but I will say as someone who studies the UK Mm -hmm. and there, if you have been on Twitter really any week, but certainly this week (laughs) there or for the past few months, but recently Stormzy, this um, black British uh, rapper, called the UK racist. And there's been a hubbub about it. Hold on, I'm clutching my pearls. (laughs) Well, but like, so, you know, some of my friends are like, duh, like move on. Like this is not revolutionary, but it's creating such a hubbub, right? Because British people are used to this fiction, especially people living in the UK, right? In a post-colonial world, they are used to they're not racist, America's racist, right? Like that, I mean, they're mm-hmm. historical. A colleague of mine talks about this in one of her books where she's, uh, or, or one of her articles, 
where she's specifically talking about the reaction of uh, members of parliament to the Montgomery bus boycott. Mm -hmm. And they are like... (laughs) aggrieved (laughs) they're like look what these americans are doing to these negro i mean they're just so angry right but then there's like a footnote or something like that where actually just a bit after that so i want to say like two years later there's a riot in um, london and all of these southern senators are like so what about that england (laughs) like but Mm -hmm. but 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 i mean wait hold on india um. yeah right but but that's the thing right it's like that happens elsewhere that has nothing to do with england i mean it's just this fascinating like fiction right so the fiction mm-hmm. is often that the u.s is the only space where you know race racial discrimination is important and i think maybe the only real useful distinction is that the in the u.s race overrides absolutely everything else right so there are very mm-hmm. and that's what that's really what your question about is about when thinking about poor white people or working class white people then and now in terms of you know during slavery and now that it's only because race can override like very clear connections between poor people and poor white people and enslaved people because there are also free black people as well who you don't see poor white people sort of striving to connect themselves with either right and it's Mm -hmm. because race overrides common economic sense and that benefits in this you know the context of the novel it benefits the slave owning class and in terms of now you can argue about who that benefits but race overrides everything else but in like in the uk class seems to override everything else which is why they're freaking out now about being called racist well in this right there's there is usually behind all of these things it's a very cunning strategy if you can keep people from banding together then the minority can stay in power much more easily and their minority interests can be forced on everyone else yeah And so uh, I used to work in direct marketing and one of the rules of direct marketing, like, you know, okay, you're going to get this thing in the mail. How do you get somebody to open this piece of mail and like pull out a checkbook and pay for something or, or take action on something? And one of the first lessons you learn is to use emotion, not logic. If you can appeal to the emotion of your intended audience it is much more powerful and negative emotions particularly are much more powerful than positive emotions or logical reasons. And so like I instantly think of that in these situations where I'm like, I'm sure there are some people who sit down and strategically are thinking about these things in a very cold calculating way. But also it's like you see it working and you lean into it, right? Right. Like, oh, huh. If we rile up the indentured servants against, you know, the enslaved people working next to them, then we don't have a riot on our hands. And instead, they're at each other's throats instead of looking at the real enemy here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, so I think in our first conversation, this is when I was trying to talk about Andrew Johnson. And I was like, is it Andrew Jackson? We have this whole thing. Uh, I saw you tweeting about him the other day. And I was like, there it is. (laughs) I was like, oh, yeah. I remember then he was a dick. A mess. But, um, but that is one of the things. So every other year or so, I teach a graduate seminar on reconstruction and we spend 16 glorious weeks reading, you know, thousands, literally thousands of pages about reconstruction over and over again. It is a rewarding, but painful semester. 
But one of the things that my students and, and I are always fascinated by are the ways in which Andrew Johnson's legacy, you know, partially because he was impeached and he was a really ineffectual president, but also I think because of this sort of fiction that doesn't allow us to have class and race conversations. But we don't often realize that part of what his platform is, you know, when he, um, when Lincoln was elected and certainly when Johnson succeeded him into the, the Oval Office is that he really fashioned himself as a part of this class of people that you're talking about. Those who are not slave owners or large plantation owners, maybe they didn't even come from landed families, right? So they had mm-hmm. to make their fortunes through other means, right? Like getting an education, many of them become, you know, businessmen or doctors, things like that. And so what we would imagine with common sense is, okay, like these are people who of course do not support slavery because they understand that it's terrible and all people should have, you know, access to freedom and they should be paid for their wages and whatever. And Johnson was like, no, actually, literally he he argues over and over again, which is part of what makes him really unpopular. But he argues that the enemy of these lower middle class, working class white people is the large plantation owner and the slave. And he is he does so much work in reinforcing that boundary between poor white people and enslaved people or even just free black people because he cannot he certainly knows that there's a distinction between poor and lower middle class white people and you know large plantation owners and those who make their business through slavery but he cannot even fathom the possibility that these same people would have any kind of connection economically and class-wise with Black people. Mm-hmm. And we see that, I'm just like straight up like history lecture mode, but we see that again, again happening in Reconstruction. So the Reconstruction are the roots of the American public education system, partially because enslaved people begin to, or are immediately asking for education, um, basic literacy, and then later they're mm-hmm. asking for education. And so you see the roots of the public education system there. And one of the you things- You can kind of, I, I mean, coincidentally, that is a thing that is explored in Rebel by Beverly Jenkins. The heroine is a teacher and trying to use the money that, the very little money that was put into this really terrible system to try to educate the newly freed down in the South. Sorry. And not just, right, Sorry. and not just children. No, it's part, I'm, I love that story, but uh, I love that book. But yeah, and it's not just children, right? It's like adults and all of that. But one of the things we, people often don't realize is that while this is a system very much spurred by the desires of freed people, there is, I don't want to say unintended consequence, but it, it very severely affects poor white people as well. They have access to basic literacy and education in the next century that they would not have had access to before. Mm. And yet we teach, you know, depending on where you get this information, often people teach this as solely about freed people. The sort of assumption being that all white people are literate, which is absolutely not true at the time. Or we teach this as devoid of a racial impetus. When we do that, I mean, I say we, you know, my colleagues and I, when I don't do this though, but when people (laughs) do this... What they're stopping people from understanding is that while race is significant, class is just as significant, right? Poor, many freed people do not have access to generational wealth or any kind of, I mean, they barely have access to land, many of them, right, by design. The same is true for poor white people. They do not have the same kinds of access 
to land and education and financial opportunities. And so they begin to access and they, and they are, they want some of the same things socially, but they don't often band together to get them. Well, right. If you treat all of these things as a scarce resource, then you can make those without fight over the table scraps that you throw down on the floor for them. Right. Which is, Um, I mean, which to bring it back to the book we're discussing, that's so much of what is happening with Janetta, right? That the scarce resource there is access to whiteness. She has been raised in a family where her access to whiteness by being mixed and by having white a white father and by people ignoring realistically her racial heritage that she can access something but she ends up where she is primarily because the idea is that to, for you to hold on to that you have to then help deprive other people of african descent from their freedom mm-hmm. right only i can have this <laughs> right only i can have it The romance in this book, I feel is pretty understated. So much of it is they help each other on their individual growth journeys. And like the love that grows between them is real. But also, I guess I would say like a lot of the internal conflict is about themselves rather than their relationship. Yeah. Like they both, the journey that they go through makes them able to enter into a healthy relationship. Right. Which I... (laughs) Can we just have more romances like that? Yeah. I'm obsessed with it. But it, yeah, there's not this kind of like, we really want to be together. And then there are all of these like, you know, kitchen sinks thrown into the mix and it doesn't work out. It's literally just, how do I even get myself to a point where I literally can even fathom loving someone and then them loving me back? Right. I got to, I just got, I just went off and I got distracted because I was looking at the cover of this book again. And I realized that Daniel's shirt is unbuttoned like all the way down to his belt. It's wonderful. I was like, what's that behind the title here? Oh, hello. Sorry. Uh, what were you saying? The, the love story. Yeah, no, they're, they are incredibly sweet with each other. Like because of who they are, you know, we talked about how Janetta, something she struggles with is subsuming her needs beneath others. Mm-hmm. And when they do eventually have sex, she says to him, you don't have to be gentle. And the backstory behind that is that she is not a virgin. And because of the conditioning that she has received about what that means, she's basically like, well, I'm used. You don't have to be gentle with me because, you know, you'd only have to be gentle with a virgin. Obviously, this is all nonsense. But just kind of like where she's coming from is she's like, I have no expectation that you will be gentle with me. I don't deserve to have you be gentle with me. And he says, do you want me to be? And it's like, like a revelation for her almost. She's like, yes, please. And then the real kicker is he says, good. I need you to be gentle with me too. Uh-huh. Oh, Because he's also, I think that that really also playing with like the gender dynamics with sex, like, this idea that, you know, in a heterosexual pairing that the man is going to be like the aggressor and not be emotionally vulnerable in it in the same way. I just thought that was, I mean, that was so on point for these characters. It was so sweet. It was exactly how they should come together. Right. And it's that gentleness that you want, to be honest, it's that gentleness throughout this entire series, not just this book, of the partners coming together 
that I I realized I had the expectation with other historical romances I wouldn't find that. Which isn't mm-hmm. true. There are certain historical romances that have this, right? But that kind of layering of care that sort of blows out the sort of gender expectation um, that we often have about what men are were like in the past and what women are like in the past. And it also blows out this idea, right, of consent here too, that you don't have to be sort of verbal about what you need or what you want because, I mean, you should, but also, that, I mean, she creates this realistic, Ellis creates this realistic context where actually they would totally need to check in with one another. Yeah, right, right. They're both very raw and skittish. And also yeah. terrified of, like, being hurt and also hurting each other. Yeah, right. They're both very sensitive and empathetic, I think. I mean, I think Janetta especially. I mean, the way she has survived is by oh, um, yeah, definitely. kind of pick, picking up on other people's emotional needs. And for him to check in with her, it, it's very important for their relationship to be strong, for her to see somebody caring about her emotional needs. Yeah. And I think Daniel also, there was part of what he was dealing with is he felt like a lot of the emotions he was having, he felt, I think, weak and felt like the the feelings he was having were like not manly. A real man wouldn't have these feelings. And he kind of got a bit of that from his father, who was well-meaning, but kind of didn't understand how to support him in that. And And so I think for him to show that that kind of vulnerability also is really telling. Yeah. And and how much of that too, like he's also, this is such a fascinating PTSD conversation. It, it just, in this book, it just really is. But so much of that is not just that he feels weak and unmanly because of the message of, of the time, but also that it's that he's suicidal, right? For oh, a yeah. good portion of the book. And so it's not even just that he is sensitive and, you know, hurt and shameful and and all of that it's that he literally does not believe that he deserves to live right and so him expressing even this a, a bit of vulnerability is like a direct line to the to the idea that he I mean he spends so much of the early part of the book just planning to kill himself or hoping that he dies you know in in this way and like a hail in a hail of bullets doing something as heroic as possible or i mean sorry not like heroic as possible but like can he use his life at least for some good before he is gone right and and his relationship is so much with janetta is so much about realizing that that is a faulty (laughs) that's a faulty construction right that Mm -hmm. even as he is now right he can live a full life he deserves to be loved he can be useful he can be weak and strong he can do all of these things but it's his ptsd telling him that he can't do those things yeah i mean it's his brain right all of our brain i mean it's it's so painful our brains are whack (laughs) they definitely are even (laughs) on a good day (laughs) and so much of this book is not a good day Katrina, what would you give this book on a one to five scale for history? A solid 11. That sounds accurate. (laughs) All right, we'll do lightning round. One to five scale, heat. You said five. I'm already messing. (laughs) No, but I liked the 11. (laughs) I think the 11 was totally accurate. Four. Angst. Ooh, six. Humor. Oh, man. 
I mean, I'd give it like a negative five. <laughs> I was going to say like a two because there are some moments. Uh, like now I'm like, are there? <laughs> okay, not many. Okay, one. Well, my overall impression of it. I distinctly remember laughing a bit, like like at <laughs> scenes here and there. But it's the overall impression. It, it's, it's, yeah, negative five. Yeah, yeah. Just remember that the first time we talked about this, I thought that you had you were saying you had ptsd after reading this book so because i mean i mean i was obviously projecting fair no i do though this was a rough one yeah it is but it's totally worth reading and everybody should read it so for trope town we are sharing books that have reluctant spy partners Katrina, what have you got for us? So I only have one, and I think I, I, I know I read this one after I started the series, uh, Alyssa series, but it's Beverly Jenkins' Midnight. It's set in, I want to say Boston, with the daughter of like um, a pub owner who's like very friendly with the American, it's set during the American Revolution. So he is pro-America, and then his daughter is pro-British, and she ends up getting a spy contact with another man and they essentially funnel information from her father's tavern to the British and it's another one of those kind of conversations which is why I thought of it immediately for this book it's another one of those books that sort of deals with African Americans having to deal with where they fit in this country or in the country that in in midnight the case of midnight the country as it might be. Lust and Found Reads recommended Hither Page by Kat Sebastian It's a male-male historical with a jaded spy and a shell-shocked country doctor who team up to solve a murder in post-war England. Post-which war? I don't know. (laughs) And she also suggested Think of England by K.J. Charles, another male-male historical that probably also takes place during or after a war (laughs) in England. (laughs) Do we need spies at any other moment? (laughs) And then Felicia Davin recommended Ada Harper's A Conspiracy of Whiskers. <laughs> a Conspiracy of Whiskers. <laughs> oh my god. Our brains have said no. <laughs> so many cats. Felicia Davin recommended Ada Harper's A Conspiracy of Whispers, which is an MF sci-fi fantasy novel. Desires and loyalties clash when a sensual assassin and an intriguing enemy agent must fight together. So, reluctant spies. You just said you have two books coming out. This episode is going to air. It's going to air sometime in 2020. So your books, when this airs, will have been released. What are they? Where can we find them? So you can find both books on Amazon. And one is called Every New Year. It's this best friends to lovers story that takes place over like 18 years of two people who just can't quite get their timing right. And then the other is much less serious and it's called Grand Theft New Year's Eve about a con woman who is stealing and <laughs> meets a rich man who kind of steals her heart and then she steals his car. Nice. I like it. <laughs> I'm excited. And um, where can people find you online? Oh, gosh. Sadly, you can find me most days on Twitter at Katrina Jacks, K-A-T-R-I-N-A-J-A-X. And I'm sometimes on Instagram liking pictures of old cheap houses. And my handle is Cat Jackson Books. Books. 
Thanks for listening to episode 17 of Shelf Love, a romance novel book club. I had so much fun speaking with Kat and you will hear from her again soon because guess what? We actually recorded a whole long conversation about polyamory, which we all know is my favorite topic. That is an episode for another day though, so stay tuned. Thank you so much, Kat, for joining me on this episode and future episodes. You can find Shelf Love on social media at Shelf Love Podcast on Instagram and at Shelf Love Pod on Twitter. Later this month, we have Penny Reed being a smarty pants. We talked about the Hades Persephone myth and A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J. Moss. After that, Denise Williams, who dressed up as Lizzo for our recording, teaches me about the sweet and sticky world of cinnamon roll heroes as we discuss Olivia Dade's contemporary romance, Teach Me. Thank you for listening to Shelf Love. If you are new to the podcast, I hope you check out the other amazing episodes. May I suggest episode 8 with Alyssa Cole? It might be relevant to your interests. Also, make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your podcatcher of choice so you always get the latest episodes. Do it right now if you haven't already. Shelf Love is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts.